Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. If you were lucky enough to be present at the ACA conference in Melbourne recently, then you may have heard of our next speaker who did presentations on both chronic pain and disc injuries. I always find it a challenge with big events like the ACA conference when there's multiple streams running at once. On one hand, you've got really something for everyone. On the other hand, it's always so difficult to choose which stream you want to listen into. Well, if you're at the conference and missed this one, or if you weren't there at all, you're certainly going to enjoy this next 30 minutes or so as we delve into the chiropractic management of chronic pain. Now, let's start with a brief background on our speaker today, Dr. Anthony Nicholson. Now, Dr. Nicholson runs a full-time chiropractic practice with high levels of medical and specialist referral. He is board certified in both chiropractic neurology with a DACNB and chiropractic orthopedics with an FACO. In addition, Dr. Nicholson is chief executive of Chiropractic Development International, or CDI, which is a leading provider of continuing education for chiropractors across Australia and New Zealand. CDI also provides online clinical training programs to the University of Bridgeport in the USA, which is part of a neuromusculoskeletal medicine training program that is a postgraduate pathway to board certification for chiropractors worldwide. Hi, Anthony, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony. Nice to be with you. So let's start, first of all, with definitions. What exactly is chronic pain, and why do we need to treat these patients differently? Well, look, that's a good question. I think uh, there are probably a number of definitions of chronic pain, but perhaps the most well-accepted would be pain that is persisting beyond three months. So we tend to draw a line in the sand and say that if you've had pain for three months and it's not going away, then we now term this chronic. So we'll talk, let's talk neurology for a little bit, and I know you're going to get into this in much more detail because you certainly did um, in your presentation at the ACA conference, but chronic pain patients are different. Um, there are brain changes that actually uh, happen. Can you talk a little bit about into what actually happens and what changes occur in the neurology of a chronic pain person? Sure. Well, uh, certainly the majority of people that come to us do so for pain um, and they're experiencing pain within their body structures. And I think very traditionally we've been trained to assess the integrity of the parts, uh, you know, joints, muscles, nerves, identify mechanical problems in pain and pain generating tissues, and then apply physical interventions to restore their function. Um, However, look, chronic pain, I think if you look at the latest research, it's really indicating to us that we, in many respects, need to be shifting our emphasis away from worn parts, this notion of damaged parts, and towards brain plasticity. And I guess the way a patient is uh, interpreting and controlling their parts. So if we think very much as, as pain being related to tissue injury, then 
you sort of think of, well, pain being a marker of that injury, and if it's ongoing, then there must be some ongoing injury. But I guess with chronic pain, you're looking at pain that persists beyond what we'd expect healing time. So tissue should naturally heal. If people get injured, they should recover from that. So the great, great question with people in chronic pain are why are they living in pain beyond healing time? Why do they still have pain months, if not years, after uh, some sort of injury that we'd expect to heal? And so we see this chronic pain as no longer being related or coupled to nociceptive activation, if you if you like, or ongoing tissue injury. And really, we need to look further into the brain in, the, in, in those patients. And so pain's being viewed in a different way as really a behavioral decision, if you like, to activate a protection system. So if we really look at it, pain is a protective behavior uh, generated by the brain in response to even a danger of injury or a perceived vulnerability in the parts. And so therefore it can be belief driven, for example, ongoing. So, and there've been many studies now that have, that have looked at the brain functionally, that have functionally imaged the brain in, in, in patients with chronic pain. Uh, they have all sorts of alterations in their connectivity uh, disorganization of sensory and motor cortices and, and the representation of body parts, the mapping of body parts. So uh, we know that there is a, a difference in activity in all sorts of areas of the brain in a patient who is in pain ongoing. In your presentation, you talked about three types of pain, one being nociceptive, two being peripheral neuropathic, and three being centrally mediated pain. Can you explain to our listeners what these are and how, as a clinician, you would differentiate between the three of them? Okay, well, yes, we do see in research that in broad terms, they'll talk about three major pain mechanisms and the importance of, I guess, weighing up the contribution of each and effectively calibrating both our uh, explanations, even our history taking, and also our examination based upon the mechanism that's dominating. So the first is nociceptive dominant pain. This is more akin to acute pain where you've got a tissue injury. Um, you know, there's a fairly obvious injury mechanism. We see this proportionate pain response, if you like, um, quite characteristic, aggravating and relieving factors. There's an ability to challenge painful structures, identify them. Uh, you know, we, we don't see the spread or the diffuse nature or other, I guess, more complex sensations, dysesthesias, things like that um, with this category. So it's really the traditional tissue injury type mechanism. Then there is peripheral neuropathic pain. And this is a type of persistent pain that's more related to nerve injury. So whereby someone's had a, an injured nerve root uh, and now that, that's persisting. So that's, I guess, characterized by pain that would be in a dermatomal distribution. You can challenge the nerve in terms of mechanosensitivity. So neurodynamic tests might be positive in those patients. Um, 
and it's, you know, it's following a nerve distribution. Then there is central dominant pain. And for these patients, we see that the pain response is completely disproportionate to their level of function, the type of tissues that are involved. We see uh, a spread or a, or a distribution and inability to localize uh, a pain source. There are often psychosocial variables, what we'd call yellow flags involved as well. So a tendency to perhaps catastrophize. Um, there are other modalities involved, uh, other sensory modalities that are now sort of uh, upregulated. Um, and, and we start to see unhelpful beliefs uh, and those sorts of things factoring in as well. I think chiropractors uh, pride themselves in many ways on having a sort of functional, holistic approach to healthcare. Dare I say a biopsychosocial approach uh, to healthcare? Uh, clearly, with the way chronic pain is working, we can't limit ourselves uh, to thinking just in terms of physical triggers or local uh, injuries. I think the traditional, I guess, chiropractic approach seems to lend itself very well to that central uh, chronic pain patient if we are considering these other variables. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, I would absolutely agree. I mean, if we move into the type of influence that we can have over a patient, the mere fact that we uh, examine the patient, we take a we take a global approach. There's there's touch. There isn't this sterile sort of separation, if you like, with technology. Most of us are applying the hands. Uh, we're examining. We're explaining. We're educating. So I think we are perfectly positioned to. Uh, help the patient with chronic pain. Uh, I think you're quite right. The biopsychosocial. We'll start that again. I think you're quite right. The biopsychosocial model of healthcare has certainly been well recognised for around 20 years now. I guess at the very practical level, that's been mostly about acknowledging that stress, anxiety, and a range of those types of factors can contribute to pain and that we should educate the patient regarding that, and that it might be important to bring in a psychologist to deal with certain issues and things like that. But I think what the modern pain science is now starting to tell us is that the way we manage a chronic pain patient has to go deeper than that. It's telling us that what we say is as important, if not in some cases probably more important than what we actually do. to ongoing education and uh, focus. But what we say, the influence of what we say probably hasn't been afforded the same level of importance. So I think zeroing in on the, on the on managing the chronic pain patient really comes down to appreciating this duality of influence, if you like, that we apply applications therapeutically, but we also use explanations therapeutically as well. That we're looking to address physical limitations in the most specific way possible, but we should also be focusing on limiting beliefs, addressing those in a very targeted and specific way. That there's both a movement change strategy in what we do, but also a conceptual change strategy, that we have to change a patient's understanding of what pain means. Um, and 
that comes down to really skillfully constructing a clinical encounter um, on that basis. And I think chiropractors are naturally good at that because our our entire history has been about building a therapeutic relationship and alliance with the patient and working with them over time rather than a, a one or two interactions, for example. Uh, mm. So I think we are, yeah, very well placed. I want to delve into that in a little bit more depth in just a, a moment, but just as a little sidestep, um, most people that present to a chiropractor for chronic pain probably have been elsewhere and are high, most likely going to be taking medication of some sorts, in fact, uh, often multiple different types of medication. Uh, understanding how different medications work on different levels of the neuroaxis, um, are the success of these medications or indeed failure of these medications of diagnostic value to the chiropractor or anyone else uh, managing these patients? Oh, look, I think most certainly. Um, if we briefly look at the neural machinery involved in pain and protection, then we have the primary afferents, if you like, or the, let's call them the input units for pain, which are nociceptive afferents, uh, so that those are going to respond to some sort of change in our body tissues, whether it be mechanical insult or chemical change, uh, and that they, they bring information into the spinal cord, and, and, and if that's a sufficient activation, then we get a propagated response upward uh, to a range of higher centres. Uh, and so we know that things like peripheral inflammation are going to activate C-fibres and are possible drivers of uh, the pain system. But we also know that the brain then modulates the activity of the pain system quite powerfully with descending connections so that the brain projects down the spinal cord to set the level of activation, if you like, of this peripheral machinery. So the brain can determine how easily it's activated or it can even switch it off in situations where, you know, we need, where there's a survival situation. We can completely turn off pain from a broken limb and still save ourselves or someone else. So we, we talk of, for example, patients that respond to an anti-inflammatory, a, a, a simple non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that can in many ways tell you that you're possibly dealing with a peripheral mechanism of inflammation because those medications block, uh, you know, cyclooxygenase enzymes that, that are involved in mediating inflammation peripherally. But then there'll be people who don't respond to those at all. They've got a much more sort of persistent and chronic pain that requires medications that target more the modulatory systems in the brain those systems that are projecting down to, to alter the level of activity of the pain system itself centrally. So we're talking things like, uh, you know, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So we, have, we see crossover there between mood alteration and pain control, things like NDEP, amitriptyline, things like that. Um, so if someone is on those medications and that is helping with their pain, then it's probably a good indication that there are central pain mechanisms at work and that their peripheral tissues are interacting with a brain-amplified set of spine circuits for pain. And so then you could also look at those, you know, we talked about three pain mechanisms before and, and neuropathic pain. For some people, they'll be on the likes of Lyrica or 
gabapentin or something like that. And here we see another class that are used in patients with pain, the anticonvulsants, which really are stabilising nerve cell membranes. So you might see these used in patients who have had a, a bad radiculopathy and have had some degree of nerve damage, for example. And you might, you know, now these days we see that gabapentin actually is thought to be better than pregabalin, which is Lyrica. So if they're on a medication like that, then possibly, and that's working, then possibly they've, they've, they've had or do have some sort of peripheral neuropathic pain as well. So I guess that would be three classes that could be informative, whether NSAIDs or your, your, your simple analgesics are working versus uh, your more centrally mediated uh, modulatory compounds, serotonin, noradrenaline, uh, even opiates from the brainstem, and, and also your neuropathic-type uh, drugs like Lyrica or Gabapentin. Now, we know there's a, a delay between um, the translation of what shows up in research to, to, to what is commonly used in practice, and I feel like I'm stepping backwards with asking you uh, this question, but Low back pain um, most commonly is fairly non-specific. Um, it's hard um, to accurately identify a, a pain generator. Is it important that we do this with a, a chronic pain patient, or can we just assume that this is a um, a, a brain-based, centrally mediated issue to be addressed? Well, I think the the direction of the evidence, I think, in in, in pain science would be towards the latter, I'd have to say. I think much research has been done on identifying specific pain generators in acute back pain. We know, for example, it's fairly well established, for instance, that 40% of acute back pain walking the door will be, you know, discal, around about 30% facet joint and, you know, 22.5% thereabouts from the sacroiliac joint. But once we see... Uh, pain persist. Once someone's had pain for months, even years, and you're not seeing focal neural involvement or other very specific signs of pathology, then I think at that point, identifying individual pain generators is not only very difficult, but, you know, possibly not even necessary in some respects. I mean, we're always seeking to be specific. But at this point, I think what we're saying here is that the brain has altered the way in which sensory inputs are interpreted, that protection systems have been upregulated, and now a whole range of tissues that previously weren't capable of activating the pain pathways now are. So you're really examining a patient and all sorts of tissues are sensitive and so really identifying the you know an individual pain generator individual pain generator in those patients is, is nigh impossible and we know for instance that those patients aren't good surgical candidates that if they have you know high ratings on psychosocial risk factors and and centrally mediated pain that it's unlikely that they're going to respond very well to surgical procedures or any other sort of intervention as well, because we're now talking about pain being really brain-generated in a way. So once pain becomes chronic, it's really a different ballgame for us, uh, and we have to take a completely different approach. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that in terms of calibrating the examination based upon you know pain mechanism, I think. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to cover that. One thing just to finish with before we jump into that, much has been said uh, recently about the overutilization of imaging, but, but clearly though, though for the chronic patient, um, this diagnostic technology still has an important role to play. And according to all guidelines, um, you know, chronic pain, if someone hasn't had any form of imaging, it's quite appropriate to do some imaging, but what should be done? What's the best imaging and, and when is it best used? Well, that's certainly uh, in some aspects a tricky question. Um, I think I think there's, there's obviously dangers in both over-imaging and under-imaging. Um, I generally work off a rule that imaging uh, should be done to answer a clinical question that can't be answered through the examination or, you know, and uh, history alone, uh, and something that could obviously change management, has the potential to change management. So certainly when there's any red flag, any suspicion of underlying pathology of any concern, not a basis for imaging is ongoing pain in the absence of any red flags or progressive neural involvement. Um, you've got strong psychosocial risk factors. You've got fairly good integrity structurally, uh, and but yet there's this, disproportion, this disproportionate pain with certain functions and there's some very unhelpful beliefs going on. In that respect, imaging and then drawing a patient's attention to what we might call incidental omas, if you like, a whole range of structural pathoanatomic find, anatomical findings that may have no real relevance to their pain could actually be unhelpful. It, it, it could uh, feed a perceived vulnerability or a weakness in their back that could just generate stronger protective behaviour and, and, and afflict an even more significant you know, level of pain on someone. So... I guess it's all about getting the balance right. Um, I'll generally, I'll, if someone's got ongoing pain, obviously we want to want to exclude a pathology, um, especially a bone pathology for someone who has persistent pain. So yeah. I think that there is certainly a need to exclude, you know, for example, in a 50 or 60 year old, there, there might be metastatic disease, for example, that would create an ongoing persistent pain at night. So we definitely don't want to miss underlying pathology, um, and but at the same time, neither do we want to be overemphasising certain pathoanatomical findings that may be age expected and you know not really relevant. So it, it's about walking this fine line, I think. Um, and certainly when we do get it, it's certainly about explaining it in very good terms to the patient and ensuring that we don't leave them with a very negative or unhelpful belief that's going to drive a pain state. And I'm assuming that in most cases, if you're thinking um, along those lines, MRI would be the um, imaging of choice in most cases? Oh, look, I, th I think definitely. I think uh, certainly CT still has... Uh, some, uh, I guess, prowess in identifying, you know, fine bone details, stress fractures. Though MRI, 
would be the imaging I would order most. Uh, that's for sure. When you when you look at the main reason that MRI is done uh, for low, let's say lower back pain, it's to identify potential neural insult as as a cause for back pain, and to exclude you know more concerning pathologies. So. There's certainly uh, less need, I think, to X-ray now. Uh, you know, save for instances where you've got you're assessing an, a scoliosis at the adolescent at the time of an adolescent growth spurt or an osteoporotic compression fracture. But in most cases, you're going to be wanting the extra physiological information that an MRI provides. Mm. That could be relevant to ongoing pain. For example, modic change, edema in vertebral bodies, uh, inflammatory reactions around nerve roots. Um, those sorts of things, MRI is very good at offering physiological information that could be relevant to ongoing pain. So, uh, and also, it obviously visualizes neural tissue very, very well. So, I think MRI is the imaging of choice, particularly in disc and uh, nerve root type syndromes. Uh, and so, I'll, I'll normally go straight for that. CT, look, it's widely used, perhaps a bit too much in, in terms of coming up with a prognosis for a disc injury, for example, uh, it, it's often the case that CT raises questions that it itself can't answer, and you need to move to an MRI anyway. Yeah. All right, let, let's get into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, what are the key things that you're looking at um, in determining if someone has a chronic centrally mediated pain, and what are the key things you need to include in your management to help these people? Okay, well... Big question, I know. It is, it is. Uh, identifying central pain mechanisms certainly starts right at the level of your intake forms and your history. Traditionally, we're used to standard history questions, such as aggravating and relieving factors, location of pain, onset, those sorts of things. But as, as time has gone by and pain science has advanced... We're now starting to see that really the standard history as it was taught is not really sufficient. What we really, for anyone who's had pain ongoing uh, and continues to live with persistent pain, we really need to be identifying faulty beliefs and uh, their understanding of why they're in pain. So I think this starts with the, with the intake forms. I think it's useful to incorporate some sort of measure for psychosocial risk so that you can stratify patients right from the start. So, for example, asking them questions like, why do you think you're in pain? Um, you know, how's it impacting your life? What's it stopping you from doing? What previous diagnoses have you been given? What explanations have you been given? So we need to understand how they're conceptualizing their pain where they think it's coming from, and whether or not that is an unhelpful belief. So I think it's important to understand that pain as a behavioural decision made by the brain is really a framework of beliefs, connections and associations within the brain that together determine what sensory inputs really mean over time. So I think we, we have to identify those factors very early. Um, and then address them both during the examination and with our explanations. 
So, Anthony, can I ask you, you've got a suspicion that you've got a person with centrally mediated pain. Do you use validated questionnaires to, to assess this and monitor their progress? Um, well, I myself use a very simple one. There are, of course, uh, a, a range of different uh, uh, tools in this regard, neck disability index, osteoestry, and a whole range of things that include psychosocial risk factors. But in cases where you might want to get a, a you know, use a, use a simple tool to stratify uh, patients with regard to risk, and it just involves nine questions uh, that the patient will either tick disagree or agree, uh, and based upon uh, their answers to those nine questions, you can stratify a patient into low, medium, or high risk. Um, just to give you an example, one of the questions, you know, up the scale, say question seven or eight, seven and eight, I feel that my back pain is terrible, I'm never going to get better. In general, I've not enjoyed all the things I used to enjoy. So if a, if a patient is starting to indicate that level of ongoing life impact, then there's a good chance uh, that, the, that there are some, uh, some strong central pain mechanisms at play. And what did you say that questionnaire was called? Okay, it's called the Keel Start back screening tool the keel start back screening tool well definitely something that um uh, people look listening to this podcast will want to want to look up okay so now we've identified our central mediated chronic pain uh person what are we going to do with this person uh, as far as management is concerned that is different to um to the to, to acute or, or um, subacute care okay well i would probably say at that point that management actually in some ways begins during the, the examination, if not even before. Uh, we've touched on the importance of identifying unhelpful beliefs, uh, other drivers uh, of their pain. And so really we need to consider calibrating our examination to the type of pain mechanism they've got. And we could broadly divide, I guess, our examination into a, a global general examination versus a, a very uh, localised or specific exam. And, and this would exist on a spectrum. So it's about tailoring your exam to the patient you've got in front of you. And so a simple example here would be someone with a very localised, say, nociceptive dominant pain syndrome. It's a recent injury. We're obviously going to be using uh, specific tests to localise the pain source and challenge it. But by the time we get up to someone who has widespread, diffuse pain, they've had it for years, then zeroing in and trying to challenge every, you know, structures individually, focusing on, uh, you know, mechanical variables, pelvic obliquities, leg length inequality, in, the, in, the, in someone with very, very chronic pain is probably not going to be all that helpful. So, in those sorts of patients, we're looking at more their global functionality, how well they move uh, through global ranges, their strength in certain situations, and very much demonstrating to this patient what is intact. I think there's a focus for many clinicians on demonstrating what's not working. But for patients with strong central pain mechanisms, it's almost like we're wanting to disprove uh, associations that they have right from the beginning. So we're wanting to uh, demonstrate to them that they actually are a little bit more intact functionally than they think they are. Mm. So 
I guess, focusing on what's working, what they can or cannot do, excluding, obviously, uh, more concerning underlying issues, any sort of focal neural involvement, those sorts of things. But, but then uh, not wanting to reproduce pain at every point on their framework uh, and, and reinforce that. Uh, rather, a global understanding of their functional capacity and then moving on to, I guess, a focused explanation that starts to address uh, unhelpful beliefs or explanations uh, and starts to, I guess, replace their existing knowledge with a, with a more empowering understanding of why they're in pain. So I guess I'd simplify that, you know, in, in summary by saying the more you think that someone has dominant central pain mechanisms, the more you're going to focus your, uh, you, the more you're going to focus on explanation, education in terms of um, reframing that and using education as a very prominent part of your management strategy. And I guess you're going to throw in there as well as the education, more of a, a multimodal approach generally to, to, to give them that sort of, you know, self-confidence, you know, whether it's meditation, whether it's exercise to tolerance and a whole lot of other things that are probably going to be emphasized more than just the physical care on its own. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a heavy focus on lifestyle factors and, and those sorts of things, uh, I think is definitely indicated uh, in, in these types of patients. One thing that I really liked um, from your presentation was um, you were actually quoting from a study that looked at how um, practitioners explained these things to patients. One used purely the biomechanical model. Here's the spine. Here are the bones, the muscles, and the nerves. And the other one was very much more brain-based and, in fact, used a picture of the homunculus uh, of man uh, and talked about brain changes. Um, can you run through the results of those that research and how, explain how that might translate into practice? Certainly. Uh, this was a study where they looked at using the same treatment approach across uh, different groups of uh, patients, and the, but the only difference was the explanation they gave for what was wrong and why they were doing the treatment. So as you mentioned, in one group of patients, they showed a picture of the homunculus and said that this is a map of your body parts, and I, I won't quote it exactly, but um, you know, when we move less or when we're in pain, uh, you know, these maps become blurry and less well delineated. So these maps need exercise to, to maintain integrity in the brain. And when we don't move, they get weaker and more blurry. Uh, and when we increase movement, we're going to do some manual treatment to help sharpen the brain maps, to help the brain better understand what the body is capable of and how it should be moving. In the other group, they gave a very mechanical explanation. This is the lower back. These are the moving parts. When you move, they should all move in this way. And when some of them are restricted or don't move well, then that can produce pain. Uh, and I'm going to treat this now to improve the movement mechanically. And so the patient with the neuroplasticity or the neuroscience-based explanation, those patients did better uh, in this study in their response to the same treatment, exactly the same treatment. So the only difference was the explanation given. And so I guess you could hypothesize that where there was a focus on the mechanical parts, those patients may well have been left with a perceived vulnerability of those parts in some ways that they needed ongoing protection versus the patients where the focus was on the brain and, and plasticity was really 
de-emphasizing the role of the parts entirely. It was to say that your hardware is strong. It's the way your brain's using them and that, and that can respond to this treatment. And so I guess in those patients, they, that was credible evidence that there is no vulnerability in the parts of the back anymore, that you don't need to worry about that and therefore you don't need to overprotect it anymore. I think that really underscores the whole chronic pain discussion, uh, doesn't it? We'll make sure we keep uh, include the link to that uh, study when this um, podcast goes out because, uh, yeah, really very, very useful modern uh, contemporary use of neurology. Um, and, yeah, I think that, that, was a, that really struck me as a really important point when I uh, set in and on your session. Absolutely. I mean, if I were to, I guess, give an overarching comment there, it would be, Where the pain science is now, it's really telling us that as clinicians, it's highly important that we first undergo a conceptual shift in our own minds as to what pain actually represents so that we can more effectively make that shift in the minds of our patients. And that shift is really telling us the following, that pain is no longer being seen as a marker of tissue injury or damage. Rather, pain is a marker of the perceived need to protect in such that the brain, can, the brain has evaluation mechanisms that can activate the pain machinery entirely. Uh, and if there is any credible evidence of danger is enough for our pain system to respond and any credible evidence of safety or, uh, you know, reduced danger is enough to reduce pain Uh, in those that have, you know, a dominant central pain mechanism. Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated your insights, and I think it's been a very sort of uh, really great practical podcast that I think uh, almost all chiropractors would find really informative. So thank you so much for your your time and for your expertise. Thank you very much for inviting me, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. For those who are listening, if you get a chance to hear Anthony Nicholson uh, at one of his CDI presentations, I would highly recommend it. Not only some of the information you've uh, we've gone through today, but a whole lot of uh, other stuff, including how to write intelligent reports to uh, medical doctors and specialists, which is uh, something that sometimes we can all do with a bit of uh, a brush up on. Uh, well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence, and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Mm-hmm.